Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Voice of Neuro Philosoclock with Eche Fatum. It's time for the Protestant Reformation Part 2. Last time we covered the Protestant Reformation, but there was so much Reformation to do that we couldn't finish. So we're going to continue. <laughs> welcome, Eche Fatum. How are you doing? Doing good. How about you? Solid. Today has been three shows in a row, which has been awesome. That's a lot of content. Mm-hmm. There will be other days to just spam ladder games. Sometimes you want to have conversations, you know? Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so last time we covered the factors that contributed to the Reformation happening. What were the factors that lead to a need for reformation or for it to be possible because it was tried before and it wasn't successful until Luther um, hung his 95 feces onto the church wall and things or the church split from there onward and then we looked at these 95 theses and what Luther's issue with the Catholic Church at the time was. And this time we'll be covering the effects of the Reformation as well as how Catholics and Protestants differ nowadays based on the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about last time, Nero is a former Protestant, I'm a former Catholic, so we have some room for debate whether or not we have the body of Christ embodied in communion or if it's just a metaphor for the body of Christ. The debate still rages on to this day. It does, for some people at least. Yeah, so what was your takeaway from last time? Why did Luther think we need to reform the church? I think that was less of a surprise for me because I think a lot of people understand the problems of an organization getting too much power and power corrupting. The thing that I didn't know was that the 95 theses were actually just different rules and parts of the Catholic doctrine that he was specifically taking issue with. And the way that he criticized the Catholic Church, I think it's really important because you're trying to be critical and point out flaws without overdoing it and getting yourself Spanish Inquisition, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's a really delicate balance to strike. It definitely is. And the thing that I picked up as the broad stroke from reading a lot of the theses was that they're really confusing and unclear about what exactly they mean. So I can see why he would take issue. And if the different rules and parts of the doctrine are super vague, you can interpret them as in whatever way you want, basically in whatever way suits you for a given situation, which makes it a lot less neutral as a set of like guideposts and rules to follow. Yeah. So this already established one of the major differences between Catholics and Protestants. So in Luther's view, only the Bible was um, the word of God and what ought to be followed. While in Catholic tradition, you also look back on 
the religious tradition that came before it and that would inform you about um, practices you ought to do in order to praise God. But Luther believed that if it's not in the Bible, it's probably the wrong thing to do. So he took issues with a lot of the practices that the Catholic Church established over the time. And one of them being that you could pay for your sins to get absolved, which was good business at the time, and probably still would be good business. Donate to NeuroStream if you want to get absolved of sin. Works every time. <laughs> the other main issue he had was with the Pope being the main ruler over um, the church as well as over the lands at the time. And basically the Pope being able to tell you what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. So as part of the Reformation and having the printing press that was invented roughly 100 years before the Reformation, there was a wider spread in literacy. So Luther enabled and encouraged people to read the Bible in the newly available German version, because before that it was all in Latin and not a lot of people knew Latin at the time. So one of the bigger effects was a widespread literacy. Not widespread as we have it nowadays, but a lot more than it used to be before. Do you know if the church sermons or mass or whatever were conducted in Latin still, or did they switch and mix in some German and whatnot? Um, pretty sure that the uh, Catholic Church remained in Latin for a long time. I'm not sure whether or not the um, the the sermon was held in English for um, reformed Christians. I feel like it would be pretty silly to be sitting in church and having no idea what's being said the entire time. You would probably figure out some of the stuff, like the basic prayers and what they mean. Well, you could also argue that you can still not understand what's being said, even though it's in your native tongue. And one other thing that changed with the Reformation was um, who could serve in the church and what they were able to do. So one thing that uh, Protestants have that is still unseen in the Catholic Church is uh, female pastors. Also, the pastors don't have to live in celibacy, which is nice, I guess. It makes for some less uh, drama because they find other outlets for their needs. I wonder what the reasoning behind that was, if the clergy are better behaved if they are allowed to wed, because you still have lots of rules, right, about how you can express yourself sexually. It should be with your 
wife in the case that it's a male clergy member. You can't just like, oh, well, now anybody can have sex with whomever. I think it's a leftover of the monasteries, which used to be um, either male or female. And people were not allowed to mix sex um, in a monastery. But I'm not sure on the story behind that. And then we have um, different interpretation of the Christian dogma based on either the Bible alone or the history of the religion itself. So for Protestants, since we base all of our beliefs on the Bible alone, there's some distinct differences in beliefs between them and the Catholics. One of them being uh, the Marian dogmas and the worship of saints. So um, what were you told about um, the mother of Jesus? when you grow up as a Christian? That she was a very important mom and overall a pretty good mom who faced some unique challenges, but she was not divine. She was chosen by God, but not of God or above humans in a like spiritual hierarchy way. She was not an angel. So to pray to Mary is something that no Protestant would do they wouldn't think that there would be any power in praying to her because she was mortal and a human. And they would kind of scoff at the idea of Catholics doing that as well, to be honest. (laughs) Um, So there's two main prayers we do in Switzerland, um, especially when you have sinned and you get sent to do a bunch of prayers. One of them is... I'm not sure how it's called in English. Other one is a prayer directly to Maria. And these are the two main prayers we do. Uh, Our Father, Lord's Prayer. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I do know of uh, Hail Mary as a long football pass. (laughs) It's very risky (laughs) and unlikely to work. So it's actually called that in the football playbook, and that's how they refer to it. I believe uh, someone can correct me if they know more football than this. Roger Staubach was a pretty devout Catholic, and he's someone who popularized that move where you just throw it all the way down the field and hope the receiver gets it and just pray to Mary that it'll work. Very Catholic thing to do. Protestant would not hail Mary. So a hail Mary is in the way we use it nowadays is where you do something and hope for a good outcome. Mm-hmm. It's just doing something you don't expect to have a good outcome, but hope for the best, which is interesting that uh, Catholics would um, pray to Mary for having a good outcome since she's in the Protestant um, doctrine doesn't have the power to change anything. So you might barking up the wrong tree there. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Um, another difference that was established through the different religious practices is the different in sacraments. Sacraments being the big steps in your faith development or in your church-going development. So, for example, there's baptism, confirmation, uh, matrimony in the Christian church. And Protestants have less of them and are not as strict about them, as far as I know. So what were the sacraments that you did or had to do as a Protestant? Uh, we wouldn't really use that word. Uh, but basically, when you're a child, instead of baptizing a baby, you would dedicate a child to the church. The ceremony is a little bit different. It usually does not involve anointing with water, which I think with holy water is one of the main parts of doing that for a Catholic baby. And then the way that we would describe the spiritual roadmap for a Christian would be the first thing you do is get saved, which is accepting Christ in your heart as your Lord and Savior. And that basically means you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that by accepting him, his spirit is with you for the rest of your life. And that also means you're going to heaven too. So you get saved, but that's a personal private thing and it's based on belief. You don't have to perform any rites or do anything in particular for that within the Protestant faith. That's between you and God. And then being baptized is whenever you want to make a public profession of that faith. So you're going to, in front of everybody else, say, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to demonstrate that by doing what Christ did and going underwater for a brief period of time, being pulled back up. When I was baptized, I also got a series of questions from the pastor who was performing it just to make sure I knew what I was communicating with that, which I think was pretty legit and cool rather than just doing it because you think you're supposed to, you should be able to explain why you're choosing to do it. And I got baptized relatively early for uh, people, at least of my church. I think I was 12. Yeah. So in Catholic church, you get baptized, I want to say roughly a year after your birth. So, um, Baptism isn't something you do voluntary, so it's inviting um, God into your body for the first time based on the decisions your parents make. And then you have the second kind of baptism, which is matrimony, um, where you decide yourself whether or not you want to have God, um, you want to live a life with God or not. Baptism used to be very important in the Catholic Church because based on their beliefs of hell, if a non-baptized child would die, it would go straight to purgatory. It had no chance on getting into heaven, which is one other thing that Luther criticized, like the whole view of how the constellation of hell, purgatory and heaven works and how you could go from one place to another. I think that's where the term limbo comes from, right? Because limbo is where babies who haven't had the opportunity to 
demonstrate whether they're going to heaven or not. Yeah, limbo is part of the purgatory. Ah, okay. So there's different different parts to it, but I'm not sure what the other were. But I think limbo is this, as as the term suggests, it's this in between world of conscious and unconscious. So when you're in limbo, you're as a unbaptized kid, you're. I'm not sure what the doctrine is, but I, I assume it was you're you're just there. You're not really aware of what's happening, so you're in this state of still existing but not not existing at the same time. A superposition of existence. Got it. Um, yeah, and the last thing that the main difference between Catholicism and Protestantism is the people that had the church. So one of the main issues of the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation was that they were corrupt, they were too powerful, and they collected a bunch of taxes, which uh, Luther disagreed with. Um, those were the church taxes, which came on top of the um, uh, feudalist taxes. So people were paying a lot of taxes during that time. This was a bit different. Taxation was different than it is nowadays. Um, you, usually people were um, working in agriculture. They didn't own their own land, so they had to to give a certain part of their produce to the king and another part of their produce to the church, which is okay during a good farming year. It gets really terrible if you have a bad year of farming because of bad weather conditions, uh, long winters, for example and you already don't have enough for yourself, but then you have to give up like 20% of everything you've produced. And if you have a couple of years like that, people really get unhappy with the conditions. And that was one of the reasons that people decided, well, if we can, why just don't pay taxes to the church? So we, we talked about this last time that there were a lot of uh, different factors that contributed to, to the Reformation happening. And a lot of it had to do with people being super unhappy with the current state of affairs because it was a time that had many har hardships. There was um, the black, black Plague going on. There was a lot of famine. There was um, holy wars that... Um, killed a bunch of people and there was a lot of political instability and you just had to pay too much taxes on top of that. So the Reformation happened over quite a bit of time. So after Luther presented his 95 theses, uh, didn't take long for uh, intellectual people to pick up on the ideas of Protestantism. 
it took a long time for the common folk to be invested in the ideas. But once they were, they were pretty obsessed with it to the point where they started religious war between Protestants and Catholics. And this was the 30 year war. It started, this is the right tab, um, in 1618. So roughly a hundred years after the reformation efforts of Luther. So once the reformation had started, there was always some tension because there's some part of your part of the Christians within your nation were of the same belief, but not to the degree where they would be paying taxes, which is a problem for any church. And taxing everyone is kind of what you want to do if you're a church or a political leader. So there was some always some tension there between either getting everyone being a Protestant or everyone being a Catholic. And this struggle was mainly present in Germany at the time. And there was German emperor, I want to say, that established that there's religious freedom within Germany. So that doesn't mean for each person to be able to choose their religion, but for each regional leader to um, choose the religion of all his subjects, which has some tensions within it as well. But it was a good step. There was religious freedom as long as you were part of one of two religions, which are basically the same. So put freedom in quotes there. You can drive wherever you want as long as it's in the right lane on the road. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, so the different parts of the state choose their religion and it didn't take too long for them to start battle over uh, which religion is the right one. And 30 years of war started pretty small, but then different parts wanted to influence the outcome. So over the 30 year period, almost all of Europe went to war, except for Switzerland. They had a lot of mercenaries though. So we were part, but the, we were part of the 30 year war, but the location of Switzerland didn't take part in the war. We were, uh, Swiss soldiers were um, held as one of the best mercenaries you could hire at the time. This is also part why the Pope's Guard is still the Swiss Guard. And this was established a lot earlier on, but continued over the time up until now. Do you know what made the Swiss mercenaries exceptional? I think it was, um, they were well-trained compared to your usual army because we, the Swiss trained mercenaries specifically, like it was one of the economic drivers of Switzerland was to send out our mercenaries into other countries and fight their wars for them. And the other thing has 
to do with some of the battle histories that were fought in Switzerland and we were able to defeat armies that were a lot larger than the Swiss forces based on some uh, Sun Tzu art of war-like strategies. Oh yeah. If you can't play Zerg, play Protoss. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, one good um, example of this was the development of really long spears. I think it's something you see in Braveheart, I want to say. Where if you have a, a cavalry um, that sends against you, having really long spears that um, kill the horses before they reach you is a really good strategy. Yeah, so the 30-year war took roughly 30 years to finish. It was devastating to Europe, especially Germany. The common estimates range between 20% or range between 15 to 25% of the total uh, German population that died during the conflict. Ouch. Yeah. It's estimated to have between 3 and 8 million casualties over the course of the 30 year war. So this was a bloody affair. And a lot of it had to do with all the other countries weighing in and wanting to to win the battle for their side. So just a brief number of countries that wanted to weigh in and wanted one or the other side to, to win the war. So we had on the Habsburg state, which was the Holy Roman Empire, so the, the Catholics, um, you had the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire itself, so basically Italy. Um, then you had the Spanish Empire, you had Hungary, Croatia, and you had Denmark, no Norway, um, Poland, that supported that side. And then you had the anti-Habsburg side, which um, had England, Scotland, Sweden, Saxony, um, and France on their side. And were supported by the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Tsar. So basically it started in Germany as local groups of believers um, trying to find out who had the better religion and then everyone wanted to weigh in because they thought they knew what the better religion was and it all went downhill from there. That's a struggle that's shown a good bit in the Vikings show, just that quest to find out whose god is the strongest god, whose religion is the best religion. And there is a bit of curiosity, too, if people are really enthusiastic about a belief system you know nothing about, and you're kind of wondering, like, what's the big deal? Yeah, and in hindsight, it's a bit weird because they're basically believing in the same god and just practice their faith and with minor differences compared to other religions. So they're did not necessarily need to be such a bloody war just to to establish which way is the better to to praise your god. 
The other issue here is the wars were not necessarily fought about what's the better religion, but who had more political influence. So it was politics that kind of made the war continue because you want to have a large country to rule over. And if you were able to crush the enemy and take their land, that was definitely a good thing. On the other hand, looking at it from the economical standpoint, it's questionable whether or not losing this big chunk of your population is really worth getting some additional lands. Because at the end of the day, you tax people, not the land. So having more people that you can tax is arguably better than having less people spread over a bigger amount of space. Which is also the issue that is being discussed nowadays with the coronavirus. Whether you want to have more people, but sacrifice a bit for it, or you want to have less people and sacrifice the economy that way. It's also harder to govern and enforce laws when people are more spread out too. That's true. So I'm not going to give you a rundown of who fight fought whom during the um, 30 year war that would take a long time be rather boring in my opinion just assume everyone was fighting and everyone thought they were on the right side of history and it turned out that both of them or neither of them were um, when they established peace in Augsburg 30 years after the start of the war and going back to saying basically well just do as you please pick between Catholicism or Protestantism and roll that. Now we get into the, from a philosophical standpoint, the really interesting questions. Namely, what were the effects of the Reformation other than to religious practices? Like what, what changed due to people having different beliefs? And this is a somewhat controversial topic to study because there's a lot of things you could contribute to the Reformation, but there was quite a few other developments going at the time. Uh, this is the Enlightenment era. It's the rise of humanism in Europe, but they all kind of go together. So you can't really separate one from the other. But not of all of what we will be talking about is solely due to the Reformation, but the Reformation had a big contributing factor. Changes brought about by the Reformation. So one of the biggest influences the Reformation had was on the political structure in Europe. So there were a lot of different small feudal lords that were usually had their sided with an emperor or sided with the church, sided with um, one of the supreme rulers at the time. And the Reformation set the groundworks for um, the nation state as we now know it. There was a need since the power of the church was dwindling, there was a need for a 
other party to take the governing power and to enforce laws to to see that everything is running smoothly so the development of the nation state um, Germany being a good example to the, the German Empire um, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire these were these different parts of the country coming together under one supreme ruler because there was a need for political stability that could not be enforced by the church anymore and Another development was in order to legitimize this kind of supreme ruler, there was the establishment of legislative bodies. So what we now know as the chambers of government where quote unquote regular people were able to have a say in how a country should be governed. A government for the people, by the people. Exactly. And we will go into this in more detail going forward because that's kind of the basis of philosophy going forward or at least political philosophy going forward. And there's a lot of different thinkers with a lot of um, great and not so great ideas on how to um, have this government by the people for the people. And we'll be discussing those in depth then. So the, there's a lot of political turmoil. There's reforming of states or forming of states for the first time. There's changes in how we are governed, but there's also changes about how we are supposed to govern ourselves. So in the Catholic tradition, there were, it was basically a free-for-all where you just did whatever you wanted to do and then um, paid the amount necessary in order to get absolved of your sins. And the Protestant church, it did, didn't work that way anymore. So you, in order to go into heaven, you had to live a good life. Which I guess makes more sense than just paying a random amount for whatever you did. But that's up to debate. So this came with some changes for how the people approach their day-to-day -day life. And this is a thesis that has been discussed for a long while. It's not something that scholars would agree on. The term that was coined is the Protestant work ethic, which is saying that Protestants were more so working for themselves and not for the church or being able to pay the church. So there was more emphasis on doing good because you could reap more of the reward. And this leading to the establishment of a bunch of different institutions that we now know as modern day capitalism. There's a lot of discussion about faith and works and the difference between working your way into heaven and having a faith that is so strong that you end up 
doing good things and living a life similar to that of Christ just because your faith is so strong. So it's less of a pay to get in or you have to do certain stuff to get in. You just need to believe super, super hard. And if you really, really believe, then that basically restructures your personal priorities to emphasize living a life that God would be proud of. That's the way that I understood it. Yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it. I think the, the question you could ask from the outside is, which is the more effective way to get people to do what you want them to do? And this is the carrot or stick approach towards ethics, where you either have to enforce it or you reward good behavior. Mm -hmm. And it really is debatable which one of the two um, yields the better results. In terms of sticks and carrots, I'm always a proponent of the carrot on the stick method, where you have the carrot dangling in front of you, but will never able to reach it. The most cruel way to do things. <laughs> At least you don't get hit by the stick, I guess. That's true. So it's the middle option. Yeah, I'm not sure um, if the carrot on a stick is part of uh, classic conditioning. Oh yeah, classical conditioning. I think that that wasn't an option back then. And it's a rather abstract thing to do. So it's not something you could as easily try on rats where you just promise them something that they will be able to work towards, but likely never achieve. So it's it's a, a lot more abstract um, thing to do in, in terms of conditioning, which I think makes it less, less tangible, less effective in the long run. Where if you just beat people with a stick or give them a carrot, if they do the right thing, it's it's easier for people to understand or for rats well, to that matter. Or you could beat them with a carrot and give them a stick if they do the right thing. <laughs> this is the best stick I could find. I bet dogs would be happy about that. Yeah. So uh, the result of this Protestant work ethic was that they were working more hours. They were um, more had more of a mm, entrepreneurial sense so they were more likely to start their own business and to really do something for themselves because there was a lot more emphasis on the worldly life in protestantism than there is in catholicism so this means that the protestant had a bigger emphasis on how we live life here on earth because they had less say or less opportunity in doing the right thing and going into heaven. So since it was a bit random whether or not you get into heaven, you better enjoy the time you have on earth and make the best out of that and hope for the best when you get up there. 
Then one other big change that came about was the rise in literacy all over Europe. So people went to school, people started learning um, the Bible for themselves in a tongue they could understand. Um, there was a big surge in schools all over Germany, especially, and this this spread over wider parts of Europe. The literacy was still somewhere around 20%, which was huge at the time, but is super low by today's standards. Super low, yeah. So more people knew how to read, but not many people knew how to read. And there were some distinctive things in how they did school, the Prussian school system, which we'll be talking about in depth uh, in a later episode, that was teaching people um, how to think but not too much because you don't want free thinkers that would question authority and the, the leadership of the king at the time. So it was getting people a bit smarter, but not too much, which is uh, an interesting thing to do and was quite different from the trivium and quadrivium that was taught before, which was the main emphasis of it was on getting people to be as free thinkers as possible. So with as more people as you have that are quote unquote educated, you don't want them educated to the point where they start to have their own thoughts because that's just not helpful to a society. Yep. It's harder to direct them. Especially if they've got the wrong idea that you have too much power that you should change what you're doing. That is woefully inconvenient. I do think it's part of the selection process for a religion that it should give some power to authority. The religions that didn't, I feel like, would not be successfully embraced by the leadership because that's really how a religion propagates is the kings and queens and stuff embrace it and then encourage it and or enforce it in their country. That's yeah, the way you a, go from it being a niche thing to being mainstream. It's a fight for legitimacy and there's like two factors to it. One side is getting the um, legitimacy from the uh, governing body, the policymakers, and the other thing is um, being the kind of religion people would want to believe in. So you have the, the, the nice kind of reward system we talked about when you uh, were working on establishing your religion in World of Warcraft, where you want to promise the right things to people so your religion looks like something people want to join and they get the right things out of it. And in terms of the Protestant Reformation, not having to pay church taxes or later on not having to pay as much church taxes was definitely appealing to people. And the difference between uh, being able to go into heaven, there was quite the 
economical factor on it. So rich people had a lot easier time to get rid of their sins by paying tribute for it than poor people would. So if you're too poor to, to get food on your table, you'd not be able to get absolved of your sins. So it was appealing to people that you, you don't have to do that at all because it's not um, something that works, but you have to live a good life and go into heaven based on your deeds, not on what you paid, which is definitely appealing, especially for poor people. Mm -hmm. Then there's a effect the Reformation had on much of the legal foundations of how uh, society was organized. So in the Catholic belief, things were based on both the Bible and the tradition of the church, while in Protestant ethic, it was purely the Bible. So this meant there was room for things to be governed that were not governed by the Bible, um, for example, how to do law specifically. Like we have the Ten Commandments, which are the same in Catholicism as they are in Protestantism. They're ordered a bit differently, I um, read the other day, but they're, for the most part, they're the same. But the Ten Commandments, they still leave a lot of room for other things to be governed that are not governed within them. So, for example, there's no commandment about how much taxes to pay and who to pay them to. So you want to have someone to govern that and see that the taxes don't go too high, but also that the taxes are not too low, so you have a stable um, society over the long run. So there's the argument of not wanting or not shouldn't have to pay taxes in the US nowadays, which I'm not sure how many people actually believe this to be a good idea. But this idea was uh, around for a long time. People usually don't like to pay taxes. And tax money doesn't necessarily go into the things you want them to go into. But there is something to be said about wanting to have a stable society. And I'm not sure what rate of taxation is the right amount to, to ensure that. But you want to have the kind of safety that you know that if I go out to try to buy toilet paper today, and if I want to do it in two weeks, they're roughly at the same price. And that there's enough social security that I won't get robbed of my toilet paper on the way back home. Like there's, there's a lot of factors that you want to be sure of um, that would make for a stable society that for better or worse have to be enforced through taxation money. As long as um, building infrastructure and like there's many, many things that the state does that is beneficial to the individual. And finding a good balance between taxing people only a bit and taxing them too much is 
a difficult task for any administration. That's one of the tricky sliders when you're playing any of the Civ Builder games. Because you're trying to have your people be productive and happy, but at the same time, you do have to pay for stuff. The government needs a budget and it has to come from somewhere. So taxing does need to happen, but if you tax people too much, they get very upset because they can't do anything on their own. They feel like slaves to the machine. Yeah, <clears throat> at a certain point of taxation, as was the case in the Catholic Church, you don't see the point of working too much because there, all the excess money basically goes to the church. If you have less of that, there's more incentive for you to do your own thing and to establish um, goods um, for yourself to, to keep. So, yeah, as I said, striking a good balance there was was really difficult, still is really difficult, and was one of the main concerns that brought about the Reformation. And going forward from there, it was a lot of different things were tried, a lot of different things have failed. The rulers realized that you want to have an amount of taxation that people are able to pay in 95% of the cases. So you, you don't necessarily need everyone to be able to pay it, but you need a great majority of people to be able to pay it on a regular year. Because at a certain point, it gets harder to collect the taxes than it is to just tax lower and get that amount of money. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're, we're still having these struggles. Like the, it's, we didn't come that far since. And tax rates really uh, differ between country and country, between region and region within certain countries as well. So we're not quite sure how to do taxes right just yet. There is a decent bit of variation too for a given people. If you're comparing cultures and cultural norms, for a collectivist culture, they may be open to higher tax rates because they see it as benefiting the greater whole. For individualist cultures, they might see it as um, the government stepping on your toes too much. That it should be about me, the person trying to develop my story and the government is here to serve the people. China versus the US, pretty big contrast there. Yeah. And the question there would be, um, what amount is the right amount to ensure that you as an individual could do what you want to do? As I said, there's a lot of um, factors that contribute towards a individual being able to live a normal life. Like the, the way we um, have the division of labor nowadays is no single individual could do everything necessarily to live a normal life nowadays. So you always depend on other people's doing tasks for you that you don't know how to do or wouldn't want to do yourself. 
So the establishment of infrastructure or um, having enough food in a store in order to, to don't starve to death. These are things that are necessary for a society to function. But in order for society to function, there need, ought to be incentive for everyone working within that society to, to want to contribute, basically. That's where things like propaganda comes in. You should get people hyped to be a part of the workforce and government and stuff like that. The government wants you to do shit for us because it matters. Okay. China's pretty good at that. Mm -hmm. Question would be whether or not they have the right approach between sticks and carrots. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. From what I've heard, they lean more towards the stick side of things. It is true. So based on this restructuring of society, on this restructuring of um, political entities, there was also the restructuring of the legal tradition. So we, we had to make laws according to the new ways people govern themselves or people were governed that had changed quite a bit and in order to have good rules like the the legal the western legal tradition is founded in the reformation efforts and and taking the christian doctrine out of the usual legal tradition while still basing it on the fundamental ideas of the Ten Commandments. There was also a rise in social welfare and healthcare systems would be a bit of a stretch to say. Um, it would, there was a rise in social mechanism to keep a a society stable because this was something that was usually taken care of by the church and due to their dwindling power there ought had to be a different outlet for that and so there was a establishment of welfare regimes all over Europe welfare regimes it's an interesting term for it how's the structure for that work Oh, that was different based from country to country. So what you would see is something that we see nowadays as well, where just there's local groups organizing to solve local problems, which is something that's on the rise due to the coronavirus, which is really a nice thing to see. So there wasn't less of a, um, we have this state welfare program, this came later on in the early 19th century that this was developed due to some social needs for it. So this was mostly based locally because the church that used to do it before just didn't have the resources anymore to do it. There are some churches that still try to do charity and care work in their local area. 
this is speaking from the Protestant churches I've attended and seen what they do. I mean, it's more of a local effort, so it's not going to be a large scale, huge help across the social strata, but they usually do try to organize certain donation efforts, helping the people who are less well off, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, the Catholic Church still does that kind of thing as well. But it, it used to be that they were the only institution to to help you if you were uh, shit out of luck. And since they didn't have the power to do that anymore, the financial power that is, there had to be other institution to take care of that. But mm. there was always was this humanitarian background in in the church and i think it was important to many parts of the clergy it's questionable whether or not it was important to the religious leadership um at the time when the uh, reformation came about because that was one of the main things they had an issue with that they were just working for themselves and trying to make a lot of money but like religion as it's taught um, for the most part has this really humanitarian emphasis that we want to help others we want to live a good life and this doesn't just mean living a good life for ourselves but living a good life in a social sense Don't tell that to the Vikings who want to fight their way into Valhalla. (laughs) (laughs) And they were... um, This is the the in-group kind of thinking we talked about on another episode where the Vikings, they were very much having that social idea behind what they were doing, but it was social to their in-group, it wasn't social in a overarching term. So they, they were just looking out for their own good, which makes sense to some degree. Well, it's kind of a, you look out for your tribe, your kin, your family, things like that, but you're not a universal her- human ethic yet, where you're trying to look out for all the peoples of the world. I think language being a barrier is a really strong factor in not really caring as much for others if you can understand what they're saying it's a lot harder to be really mean and cruel to them so if you're someone in a strange land and people are shouting at you in tongues you don't understand it's easier to just get out the axe and fight them than if they parlay yeah there's um to some degree the reformation left somewhat of a void in how to organize ourselves um it left a kind of void in terms of that in-group feeling that was uh, more prevalent in the catholic church than it is in the protestant church and this void was filled with nationalism at the time so as you had the rise of nation states there was this sense of well we're not part of this unique religion but at least we're part of this unique state which 
um, will have some minor major problems down the way going forward in time. So it, it wasn't just the um, difference between Catholic and Protestants, but it was also them having to live together. So there had to be a bigger, more overarching in-group for them to still work together, even though they had fundamentally different beliefs in so many ways, even though they believed in the same God. So there was this need for a, a more overarching in-group and the nation state filled that void at the time. Is this where God and country comes from? Um, not sure. But it's definitely where the separation of church and state comes from, where you had mm. to, to separate um, Christian doctrine from the way we do government. And this is something that is um, varies a lot from country to country. The, the amount of influence that the clergy has on politics. And for most Western European countries, it tends to go down to zero, which doesn't mean that we don't have any indirect influence anymore, but at least there's no direct influence from the church into politics. So individual politicians still have their beliefs, but those beliefs aren't used as much to inform political decisions anymore. Other countries have wholly different views on that, for better or for worse. See Iran. It's interesting that something that we've, in a way, forgotten used to be pretty standard, where the church would have a lot of say just in the governing that was done. Nowadays, there's a pretty big distance between them. Like you said, a, a person who's in Congress or a president can talk about their faith and that kind of thing, but it's not the same way of referencing the institution of religion and checking that leadership to see is what we're doing okay with all of your rules and your power. Yeah. And uh, we delved into this last time a little bit. Um, so in terms of timing of the Reformation, we're in the, between the 16th and the 17th century, um, where both the initial Reformation took place and also the 30-year war. So there was a lot of religious tensions, uh, tension between people. And this was during the same time that America was established as a country. So a lot of people that left Europe in order to go to America went there because they were um, religiously persecuted in the town they lived in and went to America because they were promised religious freedom. And so there's initially when the United States was inhabited, not when the United States were formed, because that's happened quite a bit later, like their independence of England. Um, like the initial 
settlers to the United States were strong believers in one or the other thing. And they went there in order to be able to live their religion and don't have to fear another religion persecuting them for it. And this is something that still have has an influence on the religiosity of the United States compared to Europe, where things had to be toned down quite a bit more because people had to go along, where in the United States people could do what they wanted within these freedoms. And we talked about that last time, part of the reason why American Christianity is a little bit louder, more prominent, more hardcore is because whenever people were colonizing America, one of the motivating factors was if you were a strong believer in kind of a fringe or extreme branch of Christianity, uh, you probably didn't fit in super well with the mainstream. So that was a way to create your own city on a hill, if that's how you wanted to think about it. We can make a new life for ourselves unharassed over here. But you do sign up for a different set of problems. It's really risky to make that move. And one of the last, not as nice um, things that came out of the Reformation due to the tensions between the Catholics and the Protestants, um, which trials were on the rise at the time. So people having the wrong beliefs, it's easier to burn them at the stakes and to have a civil conversation about it, which still seems to be a something we, we tend to want to do nowadays. Like it's easier to just demonize someone for wrong beliefs than to have a debate about it because debate are Debates are boring and take a long time, and there's likely not going to be a winner. Yeah, the thing that stood out to me a lot when it came to having those discussions about religion when I was a believer was if someone is going to just take a stab at you, make fun of you, and that kind of thing, it usually puts you more on the defensive, and you're less likely to want to just talk it out. So the approach that I recommend that was taught to me by Kukio was try to really understand where they're coming from and what they think, because a lot of successful conversation involves the two parties, both understanding each other's perspectives, like in a real way where you could explain their perspective to them and they would say, wow, I wish I would have thought of it like that. That's a really deep understanding that allows you to have a conversation that can cover some ground and make some progress. So what do you do in a conversation where you get to the point where you understand the other person, but fundamentally disagree with their inherent beliefs? Mm -hmm. It's a, a, an interesting question. Like I, when I was still allowed to go outside, I love to talk to people and kind of find out what they're about, what informs their beliefs. So I talked with National Socialists, for example, uh, here in Switzerland, which is a thing for one reason or another. And it's it takes a while to kind of 
break the initial barriers because I have fundamentally different beliefs. But once you get to the point where you're actually talking about the, the inherent beliefs of the other person, I get to the point where I understand where they're coming from. I see there's um, reason, rationale behind that thinking, but I fundamentally disagree with it, which is the point where I'm like, all right, I know enough. Um, I'm off now because uh, there's no way for me to have a um, a good discussion based on those belief sets. Yep, you got to pick your battles. Sometimes people aren't actually entering into the discussion with any willingness to make any change. There is the really frustrating conversation you get into where the other person is basically just quoting things that they've heard other people say, but it's not really their own unique voice of them spending some time to think about the problem from their perspective and see how it fits into their overall perspective. Just like, haha, I heard someone say this as a retort to that, and it was really funny. So I'm going to say that to you now. So along the way of quoting Nietzsche that said, God is dead. Uh, perhaps, yeah. That would not really be a very great way to connect to a Christian or a believer in a God if you actually wanted to have a conversation, just asserting something like that. They're going to say, okay, I understand that your perspective is different from mine, but that offered nothing of value <laughs> and gave me no reason to change my faith. No, it's it's a, an interesting... Um thing he proposed and is very misunderstood over time and over quoting it far too often for people to understand what he was coming from and why he would argue that way. But that's something we get into in the bit further future. There's still a lot of ground to cover till we get to Nietzsche. Uh, is it going to be an eight part series? At least. You piped him up a good bit. So I'm like, all right. <laughs> This is the Lord of the Rings extended edition. Yeah. Bring plenty of snacks. <laughs> yeah, so this was the part two of the Reformation. We talked about the, the effects the Reformation had, which were, um, it had a wide effect on how we did things and how we perceived the world going forward. And what this meant specifically is, will be most of what we will be talking about going forward. So there were a lot of thinkers that based their views on society um, not on Christian doctrine anymore, but on how should we organize? How do we make the best out of being this um, group of people having to work together for better or for worse. And that will be what we'll be talking about going forward. Sweet. If this is the first episode for anybody, we've been doing these philosophy discussions more or less in chronological order, trying to start from the older ideas and working our way to newer ideas. So you can check the older ones to get started with philosophy. This is philosophy for people who don't have a bachelor's degree just to like thinking about stuff and understanding the context of why 
the world thinks in certain ways and why different groups think the way they do. And also just trying to improve your general understanding of the world. Thinking is fun. It does take a good bit of work and finding conversation that is rich and fulfilling and empowers your understanding is in shorter supply than we would like. So join us on the next time of Philosophy Clock with Eche Fatum. Thank you very much for coming on. Sir. Thank you. So I want to say specifically next time we're going to talk about free thinkers that had different ideas about the state of nature, the state of law, the state of society. Uh, it will be Thomas Hobbes, uh, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Oh, yeah. I recognize those names. Yeah, we're getting into people that are a lot more known um, than the older names we talked about, where you have heard the name before. But the ideas that come up now, they're still very relevant in how we do things nowadays. And this is mm. all during the Enlightenment era, like the era that preceded the, the um, rule of the church. So the Enlightenment, people started thinking in different ways again because there wasn't as much Christian doctrine imposed on them anymore. And we started to do things a lot differently and come up with the intellectual ideas behind it. It's a super interesting times in terms of political philosophy. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. And for people who want a general time frame, it seems like this Thursday slot is pretty good. That will be Friday morning for Europe. But yeah, the, after music discussion with apoptosis, the Thursdays that we don't do wayfarers, because that tends to go longer than music discussion does. But I like this rhythm. It's kind of weird in 2020 there's like schedules on my <laughs> website but it's happening it's a it's a reformation of how you do the stream like there, there's yep. there's less of the your uh inherent clock um giving you the orders on how to do the stream there's more outside and post things that um will make up the schedule so it's yeah it's the concentrated power of will saying a schedule is beneficial to the business and also probably my health so just getting up at fairly regular times going to sleep at fairly regular times and also providing the content people want to see at consistent times yeah it, it becomes more of a social construct than just what you want to do with your time mm -hmm. it's a collaborative effort and i appreciate your collaboration very much sir it's a pleasure to come on here. Nice. All right, GG, sir. Have a good one. Thank you for coming on again for Philosoclock. <laughs>